All right. If you have your Bibles, let's go Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, last week we leaned pretty heavily into this great warning and, and truth that's available to us through Jesus. Uh, and the warning came in, in chapter 4 verse 1 and then it was kind of presented to us in a more positive light uh, in uh, verse 11. And, and really it was that we should have a very healthy fear that we would not enter into the rest that God provides for His people. That we would be concerned uh, if we enter or don't enter into that rest. And the writer really does this by, by drawing our attention, and he's been doing this uh, for the last couple of chapters in Hebrews. He draws our attention uh, to the Israelites and, and really their experience uh, when they came out of slavery in Egypt, as they went into the wilderness and as they entered uh, on their way to the promised land. And, and, and what we find as we read the Old Testament is that an entire generation of Israelites died in the desert. They died in the wilderness. Uh, and, and it wasn't because God's inability to get them to the promised land, but rather uh, the issue was their unwillingness to, to trust God, to give God the glory that, that He deserves. Uh, and in Hebrews, helpfully, uh, the book kind of helps diagnose their issue uh, in, in showing us that uh, it was their unbelief that kept them from entering God's rest. Uh, it, was, it was their unbelief. And I think the same warning applies to us that, that unbelief and, or, or faithlessness keeps us from walking in life with God. And, and now the good news uh, that came to them has come to us in even fuller ways. If you'll remember, we spent just a few seconds in uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, as, as God was talking to them about the good news that He brings in His relationship with them. And it simply says this, that, that, that the Lord is a God, He's merciful and He's gracious and, and He's slow to anger and He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and, and keeping steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That This is the way God continues to introduce Himself to the Israelites. But even as I say that, the way He introduces that to us is, is much fuller uh, because we live on the other side of the cross and we live on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus and Christ satisfies the demands that our iniquities and our transgressions and our sin cost us. Being simply a, a life separated from God leading to no hope, leading to death, leading to no rest. And, and so, so we strive to enter that rest knowing it's because of Jesus that any rest is made possible for us. And, and we ended our time uh, last week leaning primarily into, uh, leaning into one of the primary functions of the Word of God in that uh, the Word exposes us and pierces us and that would actually be a very merciful thing that God does for us, that, uh, that, that's for our benefit since God is rescuing us from this world and really even ourselves when we're honest with ourselves. And so uh, and now the three verses that we're going to chew on this morning 
is really going to help set the stage for where we're going in the next like seven, eight, fifteen I don't, weeks. I don't know. We'll just have to see how it plays out. Um, because what we're going to do is we're going to start focusing on a very specific role that Jesus serves us uh, in, in our lives. And it's the role of the high priest. Uh, in fact, uh, when it comes to Jesus, we see him filling three specific offices that we vitally need him to, to fulfill. That, that he comes as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, he, he speaks for God. He, he makes sacrifices to God. And he leads us in the way of everlasting life. And so, uh, with God. And so, so prophet, priest, and king. Now, what we get to find out here, starting in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, is the, the office and the function of the high priest. Uh, and my prayer is that we would be able to not just appreciate this, this role that he plays, but that through it, we get to see him much more clearly. And so that, that's the goal. And so let's, let's pray, and then we'll go uh, starting in verse 14. Father, we come to you, and we thank you that we can hail King Jesus, that where he leads us is done so in perfection, that how he, how he guides us is done through love. And we pray this morning as we get to talk about how he, how he serves as, as our great high priest, we pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see in that, and that, how, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through these words this morning. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. All right, Emma, let's go. Chapter 4, verse 14. We'll just read over it, and then we're going to kind of come back through. All right, so here we go. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but, but one who in every respect, if you like to underline your Bible, those two lines are pretty, uh, those two words are pretty uh, helpful. Every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, uh, draw near, to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. Okay, if you like to circle, those are, again, two helpful words. To help in time of need. Okay, and so, so as we talk about the role of the priest, we need to understand that the primary role of the priest, uh, as we walk through the Bible, was to serve as, as mediator between man and God uh, by providing and instructing sacrifices that would make restitution for the sins of man, all right? And, and so, in short, they would represent uh, the repentance of man's heart by making sacrifices that God required to restore fellowship with him, because that's ultimately what happens. When we sin, we break relationship with God, and so we need to make um, a sacrifice in order to restore that relationship. And so, uh, for instance, um, once a year, uh, on the Day of Atonement, as we walk through the Bible, we, we call the Day of Atonement Yom Kippur, uh, or at least the Jewish people do. Um, the high priest would enter into a room called the Holy of Holies, or, or the Most Holy Place, uh, and he would offer a sacrifice, that he represented the sins of man before the glory of God. And his role 
was of great importance. And there, there are many cases as you walk through the history of the Israelites that the devotion of the high priest greatly influenced the devotion of the entire nation. Uh, and, and so when the high priest's heart was not set right with God, the nation typically wandered uh, from wandered away from the Lord. And so so we keep this in mind as we understand we we need a priest, we need a mediator. Uh, and so as we approach Hebrews 4, we go to, to verse 14. Let's just look at that just for a second. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. Let us let us hold fast. Now, 98% of my job as a, as a preacher is just to be a color commentator of what the Word says. Okay, So I'm not, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already see here. Uh, all I'm going to try to do is draw a circle around it and say, boom, tough acting, tin acting, right? Like, a, like good old John Madden. All right? That's all we're doing here. Okay, so, so we stay, and some of you are like, who's John Madden? And I'm like, there's the door. Just go. We don't need your kind here. Um, did you say stupid? You, oh, okay. That's okay. Everybody else is thinking it, all right? Um, so, so, so here's we go. Verse 14, we stay in the context of it because it begins with two words, since then. Okay? So, so that since then is connecting us to what was just said about the Word. And the Word is exposing and it's piercing and it's dividing, which is connecting us to our awareness of the danger of our unbelief which is connecting us even further back to this warning of drifting away from what you heard in the good news of Jesus way back in, in chapter 2. That's all we've been doing. We've been slowly walking down this road. And really what we're walking through is that we would not drift away what we heard in the gospel about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has done, and what he does for us. Okay, And so, so verse 14 challenges us to hold fast to a confession. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what's the confession? And the confession is simply this, that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. That Jesus is both our Savior and He's our Lord. That's the confession that we bring up. And the writer is bringing this confession up because at the time that he's writing to the audience, the Hebrew Christians the, his, in his audience, uh, they are experiencing just an incredible persecution. In fact, Jesus... Uh, from the moment that he is about to go to the grave, he looks at all of his disciples and he says, it's about to change dramatically. He says, in fact, you guys are going to scatter. And in that scattering, we find the, the gospel spreading like wildfire, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that they did so under threat and under fire. Okay? And so, so as he's writing, he's speaking to these, uh, these new Christians, these baby Christians, and he looks and he says, hold fast to your confession because it would have been so easy for them to revert back to their Jewish heritage. Because it would have been really easy for them to go back to uh, Jerusalem. It would have been really easy for them to walk to the temple and to see the priests doing all of the religious movement and all of uh, the things that that they grew up seeing as means of this is what God looks like. And so the writer says, hey, hold fast to your confession because it would have been easier in that moment to walk by sight and not by faith. 
And so, I think when a person is going through persecution, as, as these guys were, it, it's so much easier to walk uh, by sight than by faith. And, and, and I think some of us, if we're really honest, we've doubted the Lord under much less provocation than these people were enduring. And, and so this confession is really in two parts. That, that we have a confession in the historical Jesus, that, that He was real, that He existed, that He walked as both God and man, and then we have the confession of our Christian faith. And so let's talk just real quickly about the historical Jesus aspect of that. Um, in fact, if you pay attention, I don't know if you've noticed it, uh, but, but this is the first time the writer in all four chapters references Jesus Christ, Son of God, by name. Okay, uh, This is the very first time that he does that. And, uh, and I think in doing this, he makes clear that, that the historical Jesus is the ground of the believer's faith. And this is why uh, the verse about in the Gospels about why Jesus coming as Emmanuel, God literally with us, is so important because we desperately need a high priest who arrives in the form of man because his sacrifice would not be sufficient if he only came as God. And so, so when verse 14 says, Jesus, Son of God, we're getting more than meets the eye. We get this description uh, that it's identifying Jesus as both God and man. So, so the name Jesus simply means Savior. In fact, it's, a, it's borrowed um, from the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Savior. Uh, and it identifies his humanity and his ministry on earth. Now, Son of God affirms his deity and the fact that he is God, which is a whole can of worms we really don't have time uh, to open up this morning because I'm not smart enough to open it up. Um, and so, so in his unique person, Jesus Christ unites uh, God and humanity so that he can bring people to God and so that he can bring to people all that God has for them. And so, so the second part of this confession is the confession of our uh, uh, Christian faith. So for that, we go Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And Paul simply says this. Uh, and he says it's so simple, but yet it's so profound. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That, that's what he says. This is the message that makes up the heart of the Christian faith and is, is what Christians through the centuries have been claiming as their confession. That, that, that the second clause of Paul's confession and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's, it's not a, a secret code word. Uh, it's not a mantra. It's not, a, it's not a, a secret key that you use. In fact, it's, it's the very heart of the confession that we make. Christians believe and confess Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord. So when we come into chapter 4, verse 14, we're being urged to not abandon this very specific confession. And particularly, we're being urged not to abandon this confession in the face of temptation and trial. So when life is hard, he says, hold fast to this confession of who you say Jesus is. And so, so as we've already seen, Israel's way of responding to temptation is not one that the author encourages his readers to emulate, right? Israel let temptation and trial erode their confession in God. They, they, they had heard God speak words from the fire. 
They, they had seen and witnessed the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. They received the covenant uh, that was passed on by their, for, their forefathers. And, and they heard the message of the prophets, yet they failed to hold fast to this confession. And, and so, so in contrast, the writer he, he, he exhorts his people to remain clinging to their confession of faith. He says, don't leave your confession of faith. And he says this not to do it by their own strength or, or through the mediation of a prophet or, or a priest, but, but by faith in their great high priest. Now, here's what you need to know about that. Because we just say, well, Jesus is great. Gotcha. He's a great high priest. This is the o- he is the only high priest ever designated with great. Okay? So, so that's an important distinction that the writer's making here. And so now that we know that, now that we know we're being told to hold fast to this confession, the writer does something so helpful. He says, okay, I've told you to do something. Now let me show you why that's going to be helpful for you. Why it's going to be helpful that you would walk in the wake of this great high priest. Then he gives us three things. Three things. The two of them fall in uh, verse 15. The third one falls in verse 16. He says this, that number one, as we ask, what kind of a great high priest is Jesus? He comes in and he says, number one, he is a, high, he is a priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Then you say, well, that sounds really deep and theological. Where do you get that from? Well, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. One of the most apparent truths in all of, written on every page of the Bible is that God is intimately aware of you. He's intimately aware of you. He knows you better than you really even know yourself. He's, he's aware of your greatest needs and He provides them. He has displayed His glory over us. When we get into to like Zephaniah, one of the, one of the fun uh, prophets to read in the Old Testament, uh, there's, this, there's this phrase, there's this line that I love that God says that God rejoices over you with singing. That, that God... We get to join in with the psalmist as, as they ponder uh, how such a great God would even be mindful of us, that, that He is aware of you. He is, he is he's aware of every moment and every thought and every victory and every defeat, every strength. And here in verse 15, what we get to know is that He knows He's aware of every single weakness. And this, to me, is a freedom-giving revelation that, that God knows my weaknesses and He knows when I am weak. So you know what that does? I don't have to pretend around Him. I don't have to hide that from Him. I don't have to be something that I'm not around Him. In fact, I can take that to Him and I can ask to exchange it for the strength that he provides. And so, so we, we can do this because Jesus is able to sympathize with those moments where we feel the greatest weaknesses, that, that he has felt hunger and sorrow and frustration and discomfort and betrayal and pain and, and all these conditions that when we experience them, we're tempted to lash out uh, because of our moments of weakness. Have you ever, you ever done something you regretted and you said that's a moment of... Weakness, 
Nobody, nobody said weakness there. You all looked at me like, pumpkin? I don't know. I don't, I don't understand. So, so not only does he sympathize with us in these moments, but, but he shows us that it's possible to not be ruled by these weak moments. You realize that. Just take a good reading of the Bible and you can learn that you are not ruled by who you once were if you are in part of Christ. You're not ruled by it. Which leads us to, to number two. That not only do we have a great high priest who, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but number two, he's a priest who's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So, so verse 15, let's just read it in its entirety. For, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you're like, man... That guy sounds worthy of praise. And so, so the sinless nature of Christ's high priesthood is in connection to Christ's humanity. And this was started back in our journey uh, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And what, what I find helpful is, is how the writer doesn't engage us in theological theory, but, but instead he formulates a real and, and a tangible theology that we can anchor our lives to. Uh, and so, so why do we need a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses? And the answer is simply because Jesus cannot have fully identified with us and fulfill his ministry of, of propitiation or the payment of our sins if, if he had not also identified with us in our temptation and then remained without sin. So he knows us because he's been us. And it's vital that we would understand that. And this naturally leads to this, this important theological investigation, right? Uh, what distinguishes temptation from sin? Right? That's, that's the question that gets brought uh, to the table. And Jesus was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. And so, so doesn't this logically assume that it is possible to be tempted and to not fall into sin? I mean, after all, uh, if temptation itself were sin, we would not have a sinless Savior. So it's important that we would make this distinction. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know the line. We, we've, we've seen the line, and when we choose to fight it, we understand that we avoided sin, but when we choose to indulge in it, we know the exact moment we've crossed over. And, and so, um, the typical understanding of temptation is the enticement uh, to wrongdoing, and it confronts us Every single day. We, we typically think about it in its most graphic forms though, right? Uh, the temptation to sin uh, sexually or to temptation to elevate ourselves over others. The temptation to, to steal or cheat or, or the temptation to lash out in anger. But when we, when we open the Word and we see, examine like Jesus' temptation uh, that we find in, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, what we see is how basic temptation can be. Uh, because th that narrative there demonstrates that even eating can be a temptation if satisfying physical hunger results in disobedience to God. It could be that simple. And so, so Scripture shows us that temptation can take the most graphic and the most basic of forms. And so consider when Jesus is talking 
uh, in Matthew chapter 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this about lust. He says uh, that to lust after a woman is to commit adultery in the heart. And now what we want to do is live in a way that's clean hands equal clean heart. And what the Bible says is that's not altogether true. Jesus says that, um, that to lust after a woman is to commit adultery in the heart. And so, so does this imply that a man commits adultery in his heart every time he sees a woman that he considers attractive? And as we walk through here, the answer cannot be yes, because Jesus is not calling for men to stop looking at women. He's calling them to fight looking at women with lustful intent. And again, we know this line. And this doesn't just, this this also applies to you ladies in your magic mic moments, okay? (laughs) All right? We we know the, (laughs) Stan, it's so funny. We know the line, right? We, can we be honest enough that we, we know that line? And so, <laughs> y'all giggle, and I'm like, no, that's not what we want to do. So we all know this line when we move from an initial attraction to allowing that attraction to captivate our mind with lustful thoughts. And, and here's what the Bible tells us about Jesus, that he never crossed that line. He was tempted in every respect that we've been tempted, but never once did he permit that temptation to become sin in his heart? In his heart. Not just with his hands. In his heart. And so, so, so temptation that resists or rejects sin falls short of sin, while temptation that gives over to sin is sin. That's a very simple equation for you to know. Oh, just crossed the line. Now I know where I'm at. And so, so, so the writer here, he's urging his readers to find rescue uh, from their temptations in Christ, the only high priest who can deliver us from temptation. That, that while temptation may always hinder us this side of heaven, Jesus' priestly ministry promises that it will never, it will never ultimately triumph over those who claim Christ. Never. And so, so if Jesus had sinned, the issue that we would face is that his atonement would not have been sufficient because he would not have satisfied God's wrath against sin. Huge issue. So if you sit here and you say, well, I mean, in every way, it's vital you would understand. In every way, Christ was tempted and then yet did not sin. And so, so in fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul explains that, that God overlooked the sins of the past in his forbearance in order uh, that full atonement would be made at the cross. And so, so, in other words, Israel lived under the threat of the wrath of God day by day. And so the Old Testament priests could only offer sacrifices that, that would delay God's judgment in his, against sin, that their sacrifices could only buy time. And all those sacrifices were building up to when Christ would come. And the fact that, that Jesus' sacrifice accomplishes the complete atonement for sin, once and for all. Because He is the perfect, He is the spotless Lamb of God. And so, so this was only possible because He was without sin, totally unlike every other high priest and totally unlike every other human being. Which leads us to point number three. And it simply says this, that uh, what kind of a high priest is Jesus? He is a priest who gives mercy and grace to help 
when we need it. He gives mercy and grace. Verse 16, let us then... Okay, now, I told you, all I do is color commentate here. Let's circle these next two words. With confidence. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In the time of need. And I think drawing near to the throne of grace is this significant invitation because it takes us into the presence of God. It does. And I love, I love it that it says with confidence. Because you get to walk into the room joyful that you're in the presence of God. You get to walk in with confidence that He knows you and He sees you and He loves you. You get to walk into that room and you get to see Him. You get to ask things of Him. You get to learn things about Him. And I think, I wonder how many of us walk into that throne of grace with confidence. Or how many of us carry our guilt and our shame in thinking that that's the way He looks at us. And the truth is, that's not the way He looks at you in Christ. It's not. It's just, it's just not biblical. The enemy will whisper that to you. The enemy will tell you, hey, no, he doesn't really want to see you today. And that's not true. It's just not. And so, so, so the high priest alone went beyond the veil. And really, again, only on the Day of Atonement, uh, which was a fun gig for that guy, um, because uh, sometimes they didn't survive it. Uh, and so when you went in, they tethered you to a rope. Uh, and then if you didn't make it, they just, all right, next up. <laughs> and so, so those guys, the high priests, were the only ones allowed into the most holy places, the most holy room in all of the earth. And, and so, so what we have in Christ, and this is what we're learning, that every believer in Jesus is invited, even encouraged, to come into the room. And not only to come in, but to come boldly unto the throne of grace, that Jesus is enthroned in heaven and He's ministering mercy and grace to those who come for help. Now, mercy simply means that God does not give us what we deserve. That's mercy. When you get pulled over by a police officer for speeding, and he tells you you were speeding, and you know that you were speeding, and he goes back to run your plates, right? And you say, God, please get me out of this. That's, you're, at the, you're literally at the mercy of the police officer. Because you're guilty. You are. And so, so when God gives us mercy, that's what it is. We don't, we don't walk into the room and say, well, I mean, technically I was completely wrong. You know, but you should still forgive me. No. You are at his mercy. And then grace, on the other side, is, is it, it means that, that He gives us what we do not deserve. That's grace. It's, it's when, um, if, you were, if, if you have kids, right? And what they deserve is, is grounding or, or a spanking, right? And you don't do it. That's grace. You're being graceful. Towards them, so so here we find 
access because of Jesus to not only enter the room, we get to enter with confidence that our greatest needs will be met. We can approach in order to find grace that we need to face every situation in life and to receive, receive the mercy we need to cover the sins that we commit. And if, if we cannot draw near to God with confidence on account of Christ's work, then the Christian life would be futile and hopeless. It would be. And so, so, so we would not dare enter God's presence if we didn't know Jesus as the one, as First John uh, 1.9 says, who is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that if Christ were not our great high priest, we would not stand before God. We wouldn't. That, that we would be cast from His presence for all eternity, and yet no Christian lives under this threat. It's why we can, it's why we can sing with any confidence, all hell King Jesus. It's why we can celebrate the moment when we get to say, when, when all looked lost, when everything was dark, light broke through. And so, so, so and yet, we don't live under that threat. In fact, righteous judgment has been replaced by radical mercy. And so, so let us not try to hide from God's presence. Instead, let us draw near to Him with all boldness and all confidence, knowing that He is willing to equip us with mercy and grace in our times of need. In our times of need. Most of the time, at least in my life, that comes in the moment when I realize I am completely incapable of rescuing myself. Like all of our, all of our great stories follow this line, right? All of our movies climax at this moment when it looks like the people we've been pulling for are about to lose and all of a sudden the hero arrives. We borrow that. We borrow that narrative from the Word. We borrow that narrative because that's our story. So let's start wrapping this up, Swan. So here, here's what I think this whole set of verses drives us towards. And it's, it's really a pondering or, or meditating on, uh, on the strength of our faith in Jesus when it comes to the temptations we face in life. This is what he's saying. He goes, when it comes to the temptations that you face in your life, hold fast to your confession in Jesus. Hold fast. In particular, um, the pondering is, is, do I believe Jesus is more sustaining than my temptation towards sin? Do, do I believe Jesus was tempted in ways where he understands what I feel in my temptation? Because isn't that one of our arguments? They don't really know how I feel. And I'm telling you, get over yourself. You're not that, you're not that unique. Do, do I believe he was able to fight temptation without bending me to sin? Do I believe God helps me when I am tempted? And I think to encourage you this morning, I, I want to read you um, this, this devotional entry that I uh, read this, this week. Uh, from this devotional called uh, Morning and Evening. It's written by Charles Spurgeon, who is one of the greatest pastors, uh, I think, of all time. But, you know, uh, at least we can say in the last 500 years. And he, he wrote um, this, and, I, and immediately I knew where we were going. And I was like, man, that's, I think that's so helpful. And I hope it is to you this morning. 
So this is the entry from January the 16th. It says this, I will help thee, saith the Lord. From Isaiah chapter 41, verse 14. It says, This morning let us hear the Lord Jesus speak to each one of us. I will help thee. It is but a small thing for me, thy God, to help thee. Consider what I have already done. What? Not help thee? Why, I bought thee with my blood. What? Not, not help thee? I, I have died for thee, and I have, I have done the greater. Will I not do the less? Help thee? It, it is the least thing I will ever do for thee. I have done more and will do more. Before the world began, I chose thee. I made covenant for thee. I laid aside my glory and became a man for thee. I, I gave up my life for thee. And if I did all this, I will surely help thee now. In helping thee, I am giving thee what I have bought for thee already. If thou hast need of a thousand times as much help, I would give it thee. Thou requirest uh, little compared to what I am ready to give. Tis much for thee to need, but it is nothing for me to bestow. Help thee? Fear not. If there were an ant at the door of thy granary asking for help, it would not ruin thee to give him a handful of thy wheat. And art thou nothing but a tiny insect at the door of all my sufficiency? I will help thee. Oh, my soul, is not this enough? Dost thou need more strength than the, the omnipotence of the united trinity? Dost thou want more wisdom than exists in the Father? More love than displays itself in the Son? Or more power than is manifest in the influences of the Spirit? Bring hither thine empty pitcher. Surely this well will fill it. Haste, gather up thy wants and, and bring them here, thine emptiness, thy woes, thy needs. Behold, this river of God is full for thy supply. What canst thou desire beside? Go forth, my soul, into this, in this thy might. The eternal God is thine helper. Fear not, for I am with thee. Oh, do not be dismayed. I am thy God, and I will give thee aid. That's what we have. In Jesus, we have this high priest who serves us with perfection. Now, maybe not the perfection of your expectations, but with perfection. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize. When you look and you say, do you understand how I feel? He looks back at you and he says, yes, I do. Then we have a high priest. When you, when you walk in, you say, I blew it today or I'm struggling today. He says, I have mercy and I have grace readily available to you. So whether or not we walk in that, if you are in Christ, the fault's not His. It's left up to us.
do we walk in the light of what He offers? Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. We'll have a group over here. If you, if you want to give your heart to Jesus this morning, nothing would bring us more joy. And if you want to stop and remember the price that He paid through communion, we have those elements in the back. I love you guys. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to You and we thank You so very much for this incredible amount of love that You've bestowed upon us. We thank You that Your Son serves us even in this very moment as our great High Priest. And I pray that our hearts would be focused toward Him. We love You. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.